We've been taking some time the last few weeks to look in Philippians chapter 2 at the Christ of Christmas. And though Philippians chapter 2 is not traditionally considered a Christmas passage, the story of it is really all about Christmas. As uh, we uh, read here how the Lord Jesus Christ was made in uh, a fashion as a man, as He became man for us, that's what happened there in that manger over 2,000 years ago. The Lord Jesus Christ was born for us. We have seen His deity Uh, We have seen His humanity, and this morning we're going to focus on verse number 8 primarily, and we're going to notice the humility of Christ. But I want to go back to verse number 5 to begin reading, verse number 5 of Philippians 2, "...let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation." And took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And now verse 8 says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christmas is an occasion to celebrate how Jesus Christ, who is God, was born as a man so that he could die for our sins. He had to humble himself to become a man. We looked at this uh, over the last couple of weeks, how that in order for God to become man, Jesus had to set aside the glory that was rightfully his as God. He had to choose to willingly not enjoy that for a time so that he could become human. That in and of itself was humbling enough. But then verse number 8 says that being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself even farther. And really the whole point of this passage as Paul's writing to the Philippians is about how you and I should be humble to one another. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. A mind of humility, a mind of service, a life that was others oriented. And in verse number 8, It talks about the ultimate humility of Christ when He became obedient unto death. When you think about what Jesus did for us, every aspect of the gospel demonstrates the humility of Christ. This morning, I just want to outline it very simply by discussing, first of all, His humility shown in the way that He lived, and secondly, His humility shown in the way that He died. First of all, the humility of Christ shown in the way that He lived. When Jesus was born on earth, because He is the Creator God, He could have chosen to be born into any family and into any situation that He wanted to be born into. But Jesus Christ chose to be born into one of the most modest and humble families that you could imagine. He was born into a carpenter's home. And I can tell you from experience that the children of carpenters rarely make the Fortune 500 list, okay? He was not born into a king's palace. He was not born into the home of a wealthy military general or a banker or a lawyer or anything like that. He was born into a modest blue-collar kind of home. He became the humblest kind of man. He chose to become a servant 
But his humility did not stop there. I want you to see that all of Jesus' life, all of his earthly ministry was marked by humility. The way that he lived demonstrated humility. First of all, his life demonstrated humility because he lived a life of modesty. He lived a life of modesty. When I say that, I don't mean in the attire that he wore, though he did do that. But rather, he had a very simple, modest existence. Jesus did not enjoy great material wealth when he lived here on earth. That is completely counter to what we would think that God of the universe should do were he to come to earth that he should live like the richest person live like a king live like a powerful influential person and enjoy all of the perks if you would that come uh, with with being human but that's not how Jesus chose to live he did not live a life of material wealth in Matthew 8 and verse 20 Jesus said unto them, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Think about that. What is Jesus saying there? He's basically saying, I'm homeless. Now be honest. The last time you saw a homeless person standing on the side of the road maybe with a sign asking for some donations for help. Did you immediately associate that picture with your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not saying Jesus was a panhandler, but what I am saying is that Jesus did not even own a home of His own. That's what it says. He hath not where to lay His head. He lived off of the charity of others, and providing for himself a meager existence throughout this life. Jesus didn't live in a palace. He didn't have a grand estate out in the countryside with servants running around him, tending to him. He didn't live a life of material wealth. As I was thinking through this, I thought, the more I thought about it, the more I realized there are so many examples of this in Scripture. One of the one of the most common ways that people today show off their wealth is with their transportation. You know, you see somebody driving down the road in a Lamborghini. What do you think? That person's got money or they're really in debt. (laughs) But that Lamborghini is a status symbol. Look at me, I'm wealthy. Well, it's been like that throughout much of the world's history, even before automobiles were invented, whether it was the, uh, uh, the kind of horse that you rode or how fancy your chariot was. I mean, transportation's always been a way for people to display their wealth. Do you know, Jesus, there's no record in Scripture that he owned any form of transportation. He didn't even have a donkey of his own to ride on. The only transportation he had was his own two feet. So much so that the... That at the end of his life, right before the crucifixion, when he's coming into Jerusalem, he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He has to send two of his disciples to go and borrow one. He didn't ride around in a gold chariot. He didn't have a beautiful white charger that he rode in on, this mighty steed. 
He didn't live that kind of a life. And his material existence was modest right up until the very end. He didn't even have a grave of his own. Think about that. When Jesus was buried, where did they put him? In the tomb of a fellow by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was apparently a wealthy man, and so what he had done to prepare for his end is he had already purchased his own tomb. And many people do that today. They, they will purchase their grave sites ahead of time and everything, so all that's taken care of. But Jesus didn't even have that. He had to borrow a tomb, which thankfully he was only going to use it for three days, amen? But this is how meager of an earthly existence that Jesus lived. He lived a life of modesty. It was a very simple, very, I'm sure to some people's standards, poor way of living. But not only in this material existence was he... uh, was he very modest, but also in the fact that he didn't, he was not interested in pursuing popularity. Now, this is something that sometimes we miss as we read the gospel story because we read about the thousands of people that came to hear Jesus and we think about him, you know, he was an a influential person and he was a very popular guy for a little while there. But you know, Jesus never sought that popularity. In fact, at the very beginning, It was John the Baptist who introduced him. John the Baptist is is preaching and baptizing and here comes Jesus and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He did not, Jesus did not show up on the scene and say, All right, everybody, look at me. Here I am. Listen up. I've got some good things to tell you. That's not how Jesus operated. He was content to allow the Father to give him whatever popularity the Father saw fitting to give him. He didn't pursue that. One of the temptations that Satan used against Jesus, you remember there in Matthew chapter 4, Satan said, if you'll worship me, I'll give you the glory of the kingdoms of the earth. Basically, he was saying, I will make you the star of this world if you'll just worship me. Essentially, he was offering Jesus a shortcut. Lord willing, next week we're going to look at the exaltation of the Christ of Christmas. We know that in the end, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Satan offered that to Jesus a little early, at least in some form, if he would just worship him. Jesus, of course, didn't take it because to do so, he'd have to worship Satan instead of God. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13 with me. You see, the thing about Jesus' modesty is that there were some people who rejected him because of it. This is, a, this is a fascinating dynamic to me because I don't know if you all know this about me, but I think a little differently. <laughs> and so I see some things and I'm like, I don't understand this. One of the things I don't understand is the fascination that some people have with 
influencers. Talking about the people who put themselves forward as the expert. And it's just rampant today in our social media-driven society, you know. Uh, these, these people get online and they've got, you know, this new spiel or this new thing and they, they put themselves forward as the expert and they're self-promoting and all of this stuff. And people will sometimes flock to them by the thousands and, or millions. And, it's, and, and I'm just the kind of person that that doesn't appeal to me. I'm like, all right, you can operate a camera well, you've got good lighting, You've got a smooth speech memorized, but there's no substance here. What's the appeal? I don't get it. But some people, they are really attracted to the glamour and the glitz and the bombastic personality, and, and, and that's what they're drawn to. And if, if that's not the kind of person that you are or that you know the leader is, then they don't want anything to do with it. And there were some people who rejected Christ because he was not glamour and glitzy. He was just simple. In Matthew chapter 13, I think we have an example of this. Jesus has gone back to his hometown. Look at verse 53. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished, saying, What hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? When, whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What was going on here? Well, Jesus goes back to Nazareth and he's teaching these wonderful truths about the kingdom of God and himself. And everybody, many of the people know him. And they know that Jesus was just an ordinary guy. They listed all of the relatives there that we know who this guy is. He's just an ordinary fella. Who does he think he is now standing up and trying to, uh, trying to, you know, put himself forward as some kind of a leader or some kind of a teacher or some kind of an expert? And, and they were offended in him and they rejected him. You see, Jesus did not seek popularity. He lived modestly in the sense that he wasn't about attracting attention to himself. Everything that Jesus did, he did it to the glory of the Father. Everything that he did, it wasn't about himself. It was about glorifying the Father. You know, there are many church experts today that tell us that if you want to have a successful ministry, well, you have to make a name for yourself. You have to be famous. Uh, you have to uh, uh, get the clicks and the likes, and you have to get your name out there. And the more famous you are, the more glory God will get from your life. Let me say this, if God wants a man to be famous in the ministry, God will make him famous, and that's God's, God's business. But that's not necessary for God to get glory from a person's life. Some of the people who will give, get God the most glory are people that you and I will never know of until we get to heaven. We need to stop measuring success by the world's standard of popularity. Sometimes it's best for us to live in the shadows and to be content to be overlooked so that God can get the most glory. We need to have the attitude like John the Baptist. He must increase, 
but I must decrease. Jesus lived a life of modesty. But then secondly, He lived a life of ministry. A life of ministry. Again, we're talking about how Jesus' humility was shown in the way that He lived. And He lived a life of ministry. For Jesus, life was about others. And here is why Jesus lived a life of modesty. He lived a life of modesty so that he would have the time and the energy to devote to others. A person who is pursuing material wealth, a person who is always looking for more ways to build their brand, to boost their ego, to become more popular. They don't have time for others because it's all about them. Jesus lived this modest lifestyle that we talked about so that he could give his energy to others. That's a life of ministry. Look with me in Mark chapter 10, if you would. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Just one verse here, verse 45. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. You see the word minister there? Twice it's used, ministered unto, but to minister. The word that's translated minister there means to be a domestic servant. A modern day equivalent of the word would be a waiter or a waitress at a restaurant. I ask you again, the last time you went out to eat and the waiter or the waitress came up and said, may I take your order? Did you immediately associate that picture with the Lord Jesus Christ? Probably not. But yet that's the image here of Jesus Christ being a minister. Someone who's willing to serve others. To do the, the, even the lowest job. In John chapter 13, we talked about this last week. How Jesus took and girded himself with a towel and washed the disciples' feet. He took even the lowest job to be a servant to others. He did not come to earth so that everyone could run around serving Him, making His life more leisurely. He lived a hard life so that others could have an easier life. Turn over to Mark chapter 6. See... This is part of Jesus' example that we need to learn to follow. So many times we're willing to serve, quote-unquote, as long as it doesn't inconvenience us too much. But Jesus was constantly living hard, a hard life so He can make it easier for other people. Mark chapter 6 I think it's a good example of this in verse 31. He's speaking to his disciples in verse 31. He said unto them, 
Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. Notice how they had been so busy in the ministry, serving and teaching and all of the things that they were doing, traveling from here to there, that they didn't even have time to really stop, rest, and get a good meal. And so Jesus, acknowledging this, says, "Let you need to get apart and rest for a while. So they, they departed into a desert place by ship privately. Verse 33 now, And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. So Jesus gets in this boat to go across the lake to get a little rest and relaxation. Everybody hears that he's going over there and they literally run around the lake gathering more people as they come so that when they get to the other side, there's the crowd again. It'd be like you going away for a week of vacation. So you go down to the coast and you leave here and a couple hours later you get out of the car and there is your boss and all your fellow employees right there. I'm like, oh, we brought your work for you. So what does Jesus do? Verse 34. And when Jesus, Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus went across that lake to get some rest. But when he got to the other side, he saw people who had a need. And so instead of getting the rest that he needed, he began to teach them what they needed. That was our Savior. He didn't live a life of leisure. He lived a life of service. All the way up to the very end, even when He was hanging on the cross, Jesus was thinking of others. One of the most astounding statements of Jesus on the cross is as He's hanging there, He looks down on all the soldiers who are mocking Him, who are gambling for His garments. And what does He say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's still thinking of others. Everything that Jesus did was for others. He lived a life of modesty, and he lived a life of ministry. But not only is Jesus' humility shown in the way that he lived, his humility is shown in the way that he died. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Why does it say it like that? Why does it just not end with he became obedient unto death and let us fill in the blank? Oh yeah, he died on the cross, we know that. But no, it says even the death of the cross. What, what is the significance here? When we think about how Jesus died, his death was the ultimate example of humility for many reasons. First of all, 
Jesus' death was the ultimate example of humility because it was a willful death. That is, Jesus chose to die. He didn't have to die, but he chose to. You see, while Jesus Christ was 100% man, he is also 100% God. And as God, he is eternal, and should he have chosen to do so, he could have lived an eternal physical existence. But instead, he chose to experience death. It says in verse number 8 of Philippians 2 that he became obedient unto death. He did not have to do that, but he chose to submit himself to death. That's hard for us to understand. We don't have a choice about it. As appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. And that's because Romans 5.12 tells us, Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We don't have a choice about death. We're going to die. Jesus did have a choice. He did not have to die. Because the Bible says that in Him there is no sin. And because there's no sin in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no penalty for sin. There is no penalty of death. Instead, He chose to die, and He did that in our place. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Look over in John chapter 10 for a moment. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, look at verse 17. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Jesus Christ, in the strictest sense of the meaning, was not killed. He was not murdered. He gave up his life. There is a difference. He sacrificed himself. You know, it's one thing to be humbled through humiliating circumstances, but the highest form of humility is voluntary humility. And so it stands to reason that the most humbling kind of death would be voluntary death. Especially when you think about who Jesus is. He is God. He did not have to subject himself to that. In fact, in the garden, just before he was crucified on that night, he said, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? At any moment, Jesus could have called it off. And he could have called the angels down to come and deliver him from those who would arrest him and beat him and hang him on the cross. But he chose to die. 
It was a willful death. But his death was the most humbling because it was a painful death. A painful death. You know, the Roman execution was one of the most horrific manners of death that man has ever invented. It basically combined every form of torture that you could think of into one horrendous experience designed not just to kill a person, but to make them suffer as much as possible in the process. Where we still have the death penalty today, it is often done in a lot of times it's done with a lethal injection. With a lethal injection, they say there's almost no pain at all. It's a humane form of execution. That was not what the cross was. It was inhumane in every way. It began hours before actually hanging from a cross with the torture and the abuse that preceded it. We know that Jesus, his suffering actually began in the garden as he prayed and he was in agony and anguish. But then they came and arrested him and during the night he was beaten. He was scourged with Roman, a Roman whip called the cat of nine tails. They took that thorn of crowns, they put it on his head and they hit him over the head and hammered it into his skull. And for hours Jesus was abused and tortured until finally he was made to carry the beam of the cross out of the city and up the hill and his body was so exhausted that he could not even carry it all the way and had to have help. When he got to that hill called Golgotha, He would have been laid on the final assembly of the cross and he would have been nailed through the hands and the feet. And then the cross was stood up and dropped into a hole, a socket that would hold it in place. He would hang on the cross for hours and literally just taking a breath was an act of torture. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25 says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself unto him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Christ suffered a painful death so that we could have eternal life. But his death was not just willful and painful, it was also a shameful death. Execution on the cross was many times reserved for the most heinous of criminals deemed to deserve the most shameful of deaths. 
They were hung for on public display for all to see and mock. Turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verse 27. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said unto them, among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. As he's hanging there in pain and agony, people are not looking on with compassion thinking, oh, that poor guy. No, they're shaking their heads, they're mocking, they're laughing. They're saying such horrible things as, he saved others, but he can't even save himself. They're taunting him. They're saying, oh, you're the king of Israel, you're the Messiah. Well, why don't you come down from the cross and then we'll believe you. That was the kind of mockery that Jesus endured. This was all according to God's plan, though. It was prophesied in Psalm 22. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. This was the kind of death that Jesus endured, a shameful death. But the worst shame of the crucifixion was not the mockery. It wasn't hanging there for all to see and for all to shake their heads at. The worst shame was the spiritual shame. There is an interesting connection in Scripture between the Old Testament and New when it comes to the idea of being hung on a cross, hung on a structure made of wood from a tree. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. This is a quotation from Deuteronomy 21.23 saying that if a man was hung, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. Jesus Christ died not just any kind of death and not just any kind of a martyrdom. He died specifically on a Roman cross. He hung on a tree because he became accursed from God for us. 
And the worst shame that Jesus endured was the spiritual shame of becoming sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And when Jesus hung on that cross, at one point He cried, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? We don't even understand how it's possible. But at that moment, Jesus Christ had taken upon Himself the sin of the world. He became sin, and since God is too holy for sin to dwell in His presence, there came a moment where God the Father looked away from God the Son. It was a shameful death. And Jesus Christ humbled Himself to that death for you and for me. Look with me at one final verse of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Why did Jesus humble Himself so much? Was it not enough for Him to set aside His glory to come to earth? Was it not enough for Him to be born into a humble family and live a modest life and in His life serve others? Why did He have to go all the way through the cross to the grave in the most humiliating fashion? 2 Corinthians 8 and verse number 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. Here is why Jesus humbled Himself so much. It was so that you and I could be exalted. Jesus Christ gave up heaven so that you and I could gain it. Jesus Christ took our sin so that we could be freed from it. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we could have eternal life through Him. Everything that Jesus gave up, He did it for you. He did it for you. He did it so that we could be saved from our sin. So when Paul says, let this mind be in you in Christ Jesus, that's what he's talking about. That level of humility... Jesus Christ's humility was shown in the way that He lived and in the way that He died. And He lived and He died so that you and I might have the free gift of salvation. And of all the gifts that one could receive at any time, the gift of salvation is absolutely the greatest. And friend, if you have not received that gift, the gift of salvation, 
then now is the perfect time. You don't have to wait for Christmas morning to sit around the tree and open this gift. Now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation, Scripture says. Accept Christ as your Savior by faith and receive that free gift. If you have received the gift of salvation, then may I say to you that now is the perfect time to share it. At Christmas time, we give gifts, we give cards, we give out cookies and all kinds of other things to others. Sometimes we give them to people we barely even know. But we just want to be kind and we want to demonstrate a little bit of love and Christmas cheer. But are we willing to give the best gift of all, the gift of gospel, the gospel so that others might be saved? That is why Jesus came to this earth and why he humbled himself. So that you and I might be saved from our sins. Our Heavenly Father, I don't even know how to put into words the amount of gratitude that we should feel for what Jesus did for us. I can't even comprehend all that He gave up and all that He went through and all that He endured. But Lord, I believe it. And Lord, I just want to ask that in my life you would glorify yourself even as you did through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would keep me humble so that you would increase And that your name would be exalted. And I pray this in Jesus' name. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. I really don't know what better way to wrap up a message like this. other than to invite those who've never trusted Christ as their Savior to accept Him today. And to invite those who have to humble yourself before God. When you really think about what Jesus has done for you, it should not fill you with pride. It should drive you to your knees to bow your head before God Almighty and say, Lord, why would you do that for me? Humble yourself before God. 